Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics on the Byline Times podcast. This time reflecting on seven days when former Health Secretary Matt Hancock entered the creepy, crawly world of the I'm a Celebrity jungle and tarantula-loving minister Gavin Williamson found that victims of bullying bite back in the Westminster jungle. Maybe more important than any of that, this was also the week when the Bank of England warned that the UK was entering the longest recession this century and nurses voted to strike. Joining us on that, Sam Bright, the Byline Times investigations editor and author of Fortress London, why we need to save the country from its capital. We'll also be catching up with Heidi Sigmund Kuda from the Radicalised pod about the US midterms, elections held in the middle of the president's term of office when all 435 seats in the House of Representatives are contested and around a third in the upper chamber, the Senate. Before all that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu, which features content you can't see anywhere else. There's no billionaire in the background telling us what to say, no oligarch or hedge fund. We rely entirely on people like you to support our free and fearless journalism. So you can find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So go on, you know it's the right thing to do. If you can afford it, please take out a subscription. As I say, details at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Sam and to Heidi. Sam, let's just reflect first on UK politics. I do want to talk about recession and the the nurses strike, but there has been a a comedic element to all this as well. Matt Hancock, the much reviled former health secretary, being forced to eat unmentionables in the jungle and getting some real stick from some of the other contestants there. Yeah, he seems to have been doing fairly good at it, Adrian. I mean, lots of people have commented that he's used to being amongst insects, given his, his history in Cabinet and in Westminster. But yeah, I mean, it is quite farcical. I mean, he follows Nadine Dorries, who was in the jungle a few years ago. So it's not exactly a list to be proud of from our Westminster politicians. There's a serious point to this as well. Obviously, Hancock has had the whip suspended from the Conservative Party, Notable, I think it is, that he didn't have the whip suspended when he oversaw the the deaths, the needless deaths of tens of thousands of people during coronavirus. But he has forgot on I'm a celebrity. But there are plenty of MPs, dozens and dozens of them, who earn outside income in the way that Matt Hancock is from going in the jungle, from second jobs, from second occupations, even, even third and fourth jobs with private firms and they're allowed to by the system. They haven't been sanctioned. They haven't had the whip removed from them. I mean, Byline Times revealed this week that one Conservative MP had recently recorded a new job worth £60,000 a year for a private firm. He has three jobs outside of Parliament, which means that on top of the £80,000 a year that he earns as an MP, he earns an extra £100,000 from these private firms, which puts his earnings in the top 1% of the population. And and that's endemic in our Westminster system. Meanwhile, one person who's got one job fewer 
is Gavin Williamson. And there have been the questions around Rishi Sunak's judgment, as the political commentators like to call it, appointing Suella Braverman just, I think it was six days after she was forced to resign as Home Secretary under the previous Prime Minister, Liz Truss for breaking rules on confidentiality. She was brought back into the cabinet, but he also failed to take action against Gavin Williamson, even though he was aware there were bullying allegations against him. The story refused to go away. And now Williamson is out of the cabinet. Yeah, I mean, who could have thought that Gavin Williamson was the bully, considering that he has a tarantula as a pet? And not only as a pet, but kept the tarantula in his office when he was facing a bit of stick as education secretary. He was pictured by an official photographer in his office in the Department for Education with a whip on the desk. So, I mean, Rishi Sunak must have been the last person to have figured out that, that Williamson had a proclivity for picking on people. So this sort of seems inevitable in a way. I think one of those messages, I think it was the message to the civil servant in which he advised them to slit their throat. You just think, how can that ever, in any circumstance, be acceptable? Well, this is the thing, and I think there's sort of been a Hollywood aspect to Westminster in recent years, where it's written up through dramas and on the screen as a place where the cut and thrust of democracy and of political battle means that these sorts of things are sensationalized and they're normalized in a way. And I think that lots of politicians have seen how Westminster is portrayed on the screen and have merely sought to emulate that. I mean, these are people who are, as we've seen in recent years, egomaniacs who want to play the role of the the central character in the Westminster drama. They've abandoned any sort of sense of personal morality as a result, I think. Just to be clear, Williamson is alleged to have told a senior civil servant to slit their throat and to jump out of a window, but that is currently under investigation. But Williamson has lost his cabinet post in any event. And Heidi, just tell us about the midterms in the United States, because the Democrats were fearful of a so-called red wave. It can be confusing for viewers in Britain because the left-wingers, the Democrats, are blue and the Conservatives, the Republicans, are red. The Democrats were fearful of a red wave. Now, that doesn't appear to have happened and candidates who were supported by Donald Trump in particular appear to have done badly. Yeah, that's right. And It's fascinating what you uh, two were just talking about because television and the made-for-TV aspect of this has really been quite damning on our democracies. Everything is covered like it's a mid-season cliffhanger. What happened in our midterms here is everything is still pretty much up in the air But democracy isn't dead, but it is on life support. You know, there was so much media propaganda about this red wave. That did not happen. We did beat expectations, we being the pro-democracy lane, but only because the bar was very, very low. 
we are still, you know, I say this every time I speak with you, Adrian, we are still in terrible peril. It looks like we'll lose the House, being the pro-democracy, democratic side. It looks like we'll keep the Senate or we'll gain the Senate. But the issue is all the things that we've been working for more than likely aren't going to continue. The way it looks, which we won't know for a few weeks, is that we won't get season two of the January 6th committee. And these are the types of things that are at stake. And is that because if the Republicans do end up controlling the House, the House of Representatives, that they will put the kibosh on it, that they will simply stop the January 6th committee Yeah, everything's going to be a fight. Everything's going to be a fight. You know, first, we should talk about some of the good news, I guess. You know, it turned out that women's health rights were more important than inflation. It looks like Gen Z really stepped up and showed up. We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in at least 40 years. These are all very good things. However, it was not enough for the Democrats to maintain full control. Again, this is speculation. Things are still at play. And one thing that you said early on that's very important that Trump may not have been on the ballot, but he was the biggest loser. And that is very important. A number of the candidates that he was pushing did not get elected or they may be going to a runoff. But it was very important that another reality TV star got rebuked, and that would be Mehmet Oz. But so many states, so many different things happening. They're taking states like Arizona and trying to turn them into a seditionist fiefdom. There is a governor race that's at play there. And one of the candidates, Carrie Lake, is already talking about how the election's been rigged. The final tallies haven't even occurred yet. And she's doing the same type of propaganda that Trump was doing. It's worth pointing out that election deniers, which is just bad verbiage for people lying, did lose. So that was one bright spot. And when you referenced women's rights there, let's be clear about this. The Democrats campaigned hard on Roe versus Wade, which was, of course, the judgment, the Supreme Court judgment, which overturned the automatic right to abortion. Of course, it still is a right in a number of states, but the Democrats fought hard to get women to come out and vote specifically on the right to abortion on women's rights. That's right. And we know that 70% of the country is in favor of women having pro-choice rights and proper reproductive health care rights. And this election did show that Roe is more important than money. It was more important in people's minds than inflation. And I think that's amazing. We did have the Rovember that we wanted. Pro-choice rights were protected in multiple states and anti-choice laws lost in places like Kentucky and Montana. So that was really wonderful. You know, people overwhelmingly care more about women's rights and inflation. And that is something I'm deliriously happy about. It's just that we have, there's a horrible word in the English language called gerrymandering. It means nothing to most people, but there's dirty maps throughout America resulting in Republicans having an unfair advantage. And that is one of the issues that has played out in this election. So my hope and what 
people like me have been pushing and pushing for the last year was to have people vote in massive numbers so we would retain the House, we would retain the Senate, and we could get the deep structural reform that we need so we could stop having states carved up in ways that gives advantages to Republicans because there are so many more Democrats that we're continually not seeing the kind of representation that the people really want. So it's a mixed bag. There's a lot to be grateful for, but there are some really dark clouds still on the horizon. And that's just how it is. And Sam, Heidi mentions there the U.S. economy, the importance of which, as she says, was less significant than it might have been in the midterms. But in the UK, I'd suggest that the economy now is moving centre stage. The UK economy shrank by 0.2% in the last quarter for which figures are available. But the Bank of England is warning that we now face a prolonged recession. Some of that is caused by the war in Ukraine. Some of that has been caused by coronavirus, but not all of it. And people will point fingers and ask questions about the government's handling of the economy, and particularly in light of the self-chosen route of Brexit, which this Conservative government fully embraced. Well, yeah, exactly. Economists and I think some financial specialists recently pointed out that the UK's balance of trade, so its imports versus its exports, is now at a worse moment than since 1955. They placed that very directly down to Brexit. The question now is, and that we'll see this answered next week with a, a fiscal statement from the government, is how it responds to these crises. And, and this is the test for a lot of the Western world. You know, We're not in this boat alone, as you say, and the Ukraine war is affecting energy supplies across the continent and indeed stretching into other continents as well. And the government has signalled that it wants to embark on austerity 2.0, which is essentially a plan to cut state spending in combination with some tax rises in order to get the deficit back in order. And essentially, we've tried that and it didn't work. After the, the crash of 2008, we went through severe cuts under George Osborne, uh, who's now advising the government, actually, and David Cameron, which just brought a decade more of economic stagnation. And so, I mean, lots of economists are, are pointing out that why should we try and replicate a failed model and we need a, an entirely different playing field altogether? I'm quoting figures here from the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, showing that in the fourth quarter of 2019 up to the third quarter of 2022, so that's a 12-month period, the United States economy grew by 4.2%. Canada's economy grew more than 2%. The Italian, French, Japanese and German economies all grew as well, albeit by smaller amounts. The UK alone of these major economies shrank. So it does tell us, doesn't it? It's undeniable that there is something different going on here. Yeah, I think it's that intersection in particular of, of Brexit, as, as we've mentioned. I saw a shocking graph the other day, Adrian, that will probably horrify you, that car production, which is obviously 
you know, a strong employer in your uh, in your part of the world has fallen by half from 2016 to now. That is a very direct effect of Brexit. You know, car manufacturing relies on roll-on, roll-off production. Essentially, you need the goods just before you produce the car. And if you have trade barriers of the sort that have been erected after Brexit, that's going to cause a, a big problem. And then combined with that, we obviously all saw and experienced firsthand the government's catastrophic handling of coronavirus, where we locked down too late and we opened up too early, which let the virus spread out of control and actually pushed us and pushed the economy further into recession than the government hoped. And so those two things have arrived at the at the same time. And, and following that has been Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And we've got the perfect storm, really, in this country. And combined with that now, you've got a government that's instinctively attached to the idea of cutting state spending as a way of balancing the books and creating some sort of stability in the economy, which is only going to push us further into the mire. Mm -hmm. And he's told the nurses, we haven't got the money to afford your pay demands, to which the UK's nurses collectively are saying, okay, then we're not going to work. You know, they're taking strike action, unprecedented strike action. And there are, of course, strikes in other sectors of the economy as well, around transport. Rail strikes have been ongoing and the suggestion that union leaders are going to get together to ensure that they cause maximum impact. So I think there are elements, I would suggest, at which Rishi Sunak is appearing more prime ministerial than either Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. He's made soothing noises towards Nicola Sturgeon at the SNP, to Mark Dreyford, the Welsh leader. He says he wants to ensure that there is a devolved parliament in action in Northern Ireland. So in terms of the touchy-feely elements of his politics, he, he seems to be a bit more empathetic, should we say, than either Johnson or Truss. But this is the big stuff, isn't it, across the UK that has the potential to bite him and to make his life very, very difficult between now and the next election. Oh, definitely. And I think this is the thing really differentiating between political branding and political reality. You remember, Adrian, before Cameron won office, he was going around hugging huskies and boosting his green credentials and he, he was written up, David Cameron, as a, as a compassionate conservative, which is the same phrase that Rishi Sunak has been using to describe himself. And Cameron, arguably, I'd say, was a more radical prime minister than any we've seen probably before Truss in the scale of cuts that he implemented on the state. You know, anybody has to just look up your archive of material interview Michael Marmot to understand exactly what effect the cuts had on the economy. And I think the case of the nurses is really instructive. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of these arbitrary, all-encompassing GDP figures. You know, we're in recession, apparently. But people in the UK, certain sections of people in the UK have effectively been in recession for the past 12 years. Some conservative commentators have questioned how nurses could possibly ask for a 10, 12% pay rise. Well, that would simply allow them to finally compensate for the lost growth in earnings over the past 12 years. That would merely allow them to play catch up 
on where they were in 2010. I was also yeah. looking at some of the regional figures and the last quarter of 2021, Yorkshire's growth was negative. So, you know, certain regions of the country have already been in recession, while London's growth was twice the national average. So I think it's, it's really important to, to consider who's going to be at the sharp end of all these policies. Yes, indeed. And NHS waiting lists are at record highs. We clearly haven't recovered from the pandemic. National insurance contributions, which were designed to pay for social care, are clearly now just going into the tax system. They're not paying for social care yet, and there's no indication that they will do at any time in the near future. So that is a a really difficult basket of problems that Rishi Sunak's going to have to encounter in the next few months. I'll come back to Rishi Sunak in a moment, Sam. But talking of leaders, Heidi, we're expecting a big announcement in the next few days from Donald Trump. He'll, of course, have looked at the midterms. The suggestion is that he was going to announce, I think on Tuesday, that he's going to stand for president again. Well, he can do whatever he wants, but Trump is done. And we've been saying that for a year. And the media is already anointing Ron DeSantis. This is the Florida governor. The Florida governor who stands like he's Mussolini, does every heinous thing he can possibly do to try to outflank Trump on the right. And there will be a war waging between those two, which, again, will be great for the uh, made-for-TV midseason cliffhangers. But... I'm listening to you guys and I'm just so triggered because the compassionate conservative trickle down economics, we've learned that that is all a lie. And what we learned recently in America is that big government is actually great and pretty useful, particularly when you have a global pandemic and people need to have help from their government. So I'm listening to this just thinking, oh my gosh, People in the UK have to rise up against this because it's nonsense. It never works. And I read recently that if the people in the UK had an an opportunity, they would want a Brexit redo. Apparently, the majority of people regret it. So I'm just hearing this and I'm, again, echoes uh, across the pond over here of things that we've been through and false narratives that we've endured. And just to think that your people are going through that makes me you know, makes my heart hurt. A couple more things on the midterms that I think are are important. We have tried to memory hole the unpleasantries of recent events like the January 6th insurrection. And I do think that the midterms did reveal that the majority of people don't believe in the hateful agenda of the GOP, which no longer really is a political party and functions a lot more like a cult. And yet, it's hard not to be a bit cynical because we're down to a very few races in very controversial districts that are going to play out in prime time. And unfortunately, that gives insurgents time to build up their big lie narratives, which we are seeing happening in Arizona. And it's very harmful to democracy that the process lasts this long. And yet this is what we're dealing with. We just have a few states I'm sure you guys have probably gotten wind of a candidate named Herschel Walker. That's a race that's happening in Georgia where tons and tons of money was pumped into it. And uh, I just learned recently one little note. We wonder why people are drawn to the so-called vulgarians or the clownish candidates. 
And I just learned from having Professor Jason Stanley on from Yale, who was quoting Hannah Arendt, there is a faction of people who love these vulgarians because they're thumbing their nose at the elites. And in America, owning the libs has become full politics. So in that framework, things become a little bit more clear. And I think it's incredibly important that the media stops making a joke of these characters and starts looking at them as the real pathway to further authoritarian capture in our country. Sam, we've always liked to think of the UK as being less influenced by big money than US politics. But you've done some research this week for the Byline Times, and people can read this at bylinetimes.com. We're not talking about billions of dollars here, but the way in which powerful and wealthy advisors can then work themselves a passage to government. Yeah, and this is I think this is particularly important because some people have suggested that in the era after Boris Johnson, obviously we saw, saw a lot of corruption and nepotism in Johnson's era, that that would sort of end under Rishi Sunak because he's independently wealthy. You know, he's he belongs to one of the wealthiest families in the UK. But what we've shown is that it's really work as normal for the Conservative Party. He's appointed as his head of policy, someone who donated £20,000 to his leadership campaign. I mean, obviously, compared to American politics, that's a drop in the ocean, but he only raised half a million pounds for that campaign. So it's a pretty significant sum of money. That's Eleanor Wolfson, yeah? Yeah, Eleanor Wolfson, also known as Eleanor Shawcross, whose father is actually also a government advisor. And we're not suggesting that, you know, he gave her a job in exchange for that money. You know, Wolfson is experienced in policy she worked under George Osborne, et cetera, et cetera. But it's sort of the case is that these are the waters that influential and wealthy and politically connected people swim in. And so the government is essentially drawing from the talents of a relative few people who belong to a political elite. We've also seen the story this week that Boris Johnson intends to appoint several of his former advisors to the House of Lords, which I think just confirms the same sort of story about this Bullingdon Club elite operating our democracy by remote control, while, as Heidi says, the rest of us are shut out of the conversation completely and not allowed an election when the majority wants some change. He's also appointed a figure associated with what you describe as big energy, a guy called Nick Park, as well. And it's ironic in a week when we've had protests from Just Stop Oil. And where I've heard members of Just Stop Oil protesters, some of whom we've interviewed previously on this podcast, people who, whatever you think of their methods of protest, are motivated only by a desire to save the planet for themselves, their children and their grandchildren. Questions are not being asked of chief executives of oil and gas companies. Why are you continuing to explore new oil and gas fields? And it's a figure from that world that Rishi Sunak has appointed as well. Yeah, as his, uh, his energy and business advisor, you know, Nick, again, you know, he clearly has extensive knowledge of the sector. The problem is that, yeah, he worked for Centrica for seven years, including as the group's head of communications and Centrica through British Gas is the largest provider of 
household energy in the UK. So you have to question, you know, the sort of networks that he operates in, the sort of dinner parties that he goes to, you know, surely people are going to be telling him, Nick, mm, no, I don't think a windfall taxes is the best idea, really. You know, I've looked through the CVs of Sunak's administration, of Liz Truss's administration in recent weeks, and you see the same sort of backgrounds crop up. It's Tufton Street, opaque think tanks, whose sources of funding we're not aware of. It's lobbyists. Liz Truss's chief of staff was infamously a lobbyist. And it's sort of corporate insiders who've at various points jumped between the worlds of high corporations, big money, and Downing Street and Whitehall. And no one else really gets a a look in, it seems, at the minute. Thank you very much indeed, Sam. That's Sam Bright, Byline Times Investigations. That is, you can read more from Sam and those articles at bylinetimes.com. Sam is also the author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital, an excellent stocking filler, I would suggest, for the coming <laughs> festive season. And thanks also to the wonderful Heidi Sigmund Kuda from the Radicalised Pod, which you can track down on YouTube. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been The Week in Politics from the Byline Times podcast. Do please take out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. In so doing, you'll not only get a fantastic newspaper to read once a month, you'll also be helping to keep this podcast alive. If you've already done so, thank you very much indeed. And just a word as well to say thank you to everybody who promotes the podcast via social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so we're reliant on you. And if you are one of those people, Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you all again very soon. But for now, cheers. Bye-bye.